My name is Alice Ayers, and I am a senior director with The Atlantic. And on behalf of The Atlantic and the Aspen Institute and our underwriters for today's lunchtime session, Altria, I want to welcome you all to the lunchtime discussion on what makes a great teacher. Um, one quick housekeeping note first. Please remember to turn off your cell phones, particularly in the front couple of rows here. Blackberries and iPhones need to be off because we are recording this for broadcast. So we don't want data to sure. interfere with uh, the recording. Um, I have the great honor to introduce Howard Gardner, um, who will lead our discussion here today. Howard is the Hobbes Professor of Cognition and Education at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, and in addition is also a professor of psychology at Harvard University. So if there was ever anyone who probably already can speak to what makes a great teacher, it is he. And we are fortunate to have him here with us today to lead the conversation. Howard. Thank you, Allison. Thank you all for coming. I'm fortunate enough to have been able to come to the Aspen Ideas Festival for the last few years. And to me, the big headline is the increasing interest in education. A few years ago, um, the rooms would not have been filled. And this year, thanks to the people on the dais with me, the rooms have been filled to overflowing, and it's very, very uh, gratifying to know about the interest in education in, among, among the public. Uh, I think perhaps there may not be as much consensus about education as some of the panels have suggested, but one thing you, which you hear from just about everybody now, and I think it is really a matter of conviction, is you cannot have a good educational system unless you have good teachers. This panel actually raises the ante by not talking simply about good teachers, but about great teachers. And even though I think most of us would be pretty pleased if we could say almost all teachers are good teachers, I personally believe that if you want to understand what good is, you need to understand what great is. And the panel today is composed of people who have both personal experiences in teaching and being taught and have a lot of professional knowledge about teaching in our world today. So they are ideally suited to help us understand what it is that makes for great teaching. I did want to pass on one interesting bit of information which I just became aware of recently, and I hope you'll find it interesting as well. Not only are human beings the only species that teach are young, but kids as young as two and three are already teaching. Now you may say, well, I knew that, but of course there's lots of things we know which aren't true. Uh, <laughs> what we have found out now through psychology research is if you show something to a two or three-year-old and you ask that child to demonstrate it to an older child, the subject will teach differently than if the child is younger. So already at the age of two or three, kids have a sense of how much the other person knows and how much you have to supplement and uh, scaffold. And I, I think that's a quite fascinating uh, uh, insight from, from the scientific world. I've told the panelists we're going to touch on six topics today. We may not get to them all, but I'm going to try to keep us focused on those topics. And in order they are, based on your own experience who have you had who was really a great teacher and why? How about really bad teaching and can you learn something from that? 
are great teachers born or made? Is great teaching an art, a craft, or a science? And I'm going to call that the Doug Lemoff question because one of the most cited articles recently of everybody in education was the cover story in the New York Times Sunday Magazine a few months ago um, about the 40-some steps that you need to be able to run a good classroom. So this is the question of to what extent can you, um, as it were, create good teaching or great teaching from a checklist. Number five, unless you believe teaching is completely inborn, there's nothing we can do about it, how can we help teachers improve, get better? And the final question, which we have to get to, because in a sense it's the question that's underlying so much of the discussion here in Aspen this week, is how do we evaluate teachers? On my panel, on our panel today, are Linda Darling-Hammond, um, certainly one of the nation's experts in teacher, teaching and teacher education, um, many years at Teachers College and now at Stanford University. Next to Linda is John Deasy, who has been the superintendent in Santa Monica, in Rhode Island, which I think accounts for your accent, uh, in uh, Prince George's County, and most recently, and indeed in the biography, um, has been working uh, in the education division of the Gates Foundation. But how recently has your new position been announced? Uh, last, a couple of weeks ago. A couple of weeks ago, and it is? So I'm going to be moving to L.A. Um, and uh, leading the work for Los Angeles Unified School District. Did, could you all hear John? No. Oh. Okay. So I'll use the accent to explain <laughs> it. <laughs> so I'm going to be moving to Los Angeles and leading uh, the work in the Los Angeles Unified School District. Which has a close uh, to a million students? Uh, 800,000 youth. Okay, thank you. Um, on, my, on my left is Katie Haycock, who um, has been working in the sphere of trying to help uh, our nation's less advantaged kids for many, many years, first as the executive vice president of the Children's Defense Fund, and then for many years as the founding president of the Education Trust. And I'm just delighted that as our final panelist, we have Peter Westcott, who has for 31 years been a middle school teacher in Colorado for most of that time in Aspen uh, and uh, was uh, highly recommended by people locally as somebody who can help us think about the role of the teacher, not from the university or from the <coughs> nonprofit or even from the foundation world, but from what it's like to be teaching young people in America today. So um, I'm going to try to make this not entirely mechanical. In other words, it's not going to be 24 questions uh, going through the panel six times. Um, but I will start with Linda with the question of, from your own experience, have you been exposed to great teaching? And if so, um, what was it like? Well, I think everybody's got great teachers that they can think back to. I'm sure each of you can uh, call up one or more in your own minds. Uh, I immediately think about my kindergarten teacher, and I think, you know, the saying that we learn everything we need to know in life from our in kindergarten is substantially true for many of us, but a great teacher because the classroom was so creative. Uh, then there's a long stretch before I get to my high school uh, French teacher who taught in a very authentic way, and everything was applied. Uh, 
And it's not that easy to find a lot of real-world ways to use French in Cleveland, Ohio, but we did. <laughs> <laughs> we did go to French restaurants and French plays and anything French, and, and it was a very authentic set of experiences. I had her for several years, which I think also matters because relationships matter in teaching. Getting to know uh, students well, students getting to know teachers well, I think matters. Um, I think about my high school band teacher. Uh, many people can think about uh, music and arts as places where they were able to be uh, really expressive. Uh, not too many opportunities in a lot of classrooms to do that. So uh, I think authenticity, application, uh, creativity were hallmarks for me. When, and, and you went into teaching. I did. I was a high school English teacher. When you went into teaching, did you have them in your mind at the time or, or not? No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe in some kind of way. I think everybody goes back to models uh, of some sort. So um, I'm sure I went back to also English teacher models that I had. But uh, some of those traits I'm sure I was trying to capture. Uh, I also, though, want to say that in the course of teaching like other teachers, I learned from my colleagues. And when we talk about what is an effective teacher, what is a great teacher, you have to talk about a great teaching community, a great teaching team, not just an individual great teacher, if you're talking about uh, growing that in a significant way. Great point. I have John. memories of um, a couple of folks who stick in my mind um, all the time. One <coughs> was um, my high school uh, geometry teacher, and he, uh, he was um, brilliant in the ability um, to help the class as a whole um, gain the concepts. And um, the second was... Can you say a bit about... Do you remember anything about that? Because, of course, not everybody picks up algebra with equal ease. What was amazing was that everybody in the classroom had a fundamental responsibility as students to help students who were struggling in pieces. So, I mean, it was, you all had some part of expert knowledge and you had an obligation not to tell me, the teacher, you had it, but to tell this person and that person where they were struggling. And that was a very different experience. It, it clearly stood out in my mind. My college um, organic chemistry teacher to this day uh, is probably one of the best teachers I've ever come across. Um, difficult subject matter. Um, and the, the thing about both of them that I remembered so clearly was there was no chance you were not going to succeed at a high level. I mean, it was this demand um, that was both expressed and expected that I think that was a very common trait amongst both folks. And the third person, very much so, was the person who taught me to swim. Um, and I eventually became a lifeguard and guarded for a number of years, and I just can't ever forget um, the woman who taught me first how to swim and the notion that no one is going to drown. And the second part was no one in this room is going to learn to swim without getting wet. You actually had <laughs> to be in it. And the ability to conquer both that fear and have the confidence of doing that when you're a non-swimmer, becoming a swimmer, she was just masterful. High expectations, high risk, um, and kind of flawless in the ability and everyone learned to swim. And I was really amazed by that. I, I want to go back to organic chemistry for a moment. Uh, I'm lucky enough never to have taken it. But um, <laughs> you know, at Harvard College 40 years ago, that was the course which determined whether you could go to medical school. That's right. Um, 
and uh, if there was a if there was a technique there that actually allowed everybody to succeed, that would make a lot of parents very happy. <laughs> I really thought it was his, on the second day, um, expectation that everyone was in a study group and wanted to know who the study groups were, and his tutorial hours. I can remember, it was Mark Rerick. I can remember his name to this day. I don't even know if he's still alive, but he was brilliant. But this notion was that this learning is going to take place much more extensively outside the classroom. And this kind of codependence in your study group and that I will be here for solid tutorial um, was as much a part of the lectures. Yeah, I think this is ex what, what both Linda and John has said is extremely interesting in the American context because we are probably the most individualistic society in the history of the world. And yet Linda said that a good teacher is typically not alone but is in a community of teachers and... And John is saying it was too much for the teacher of chemistry, no matter how good he was, to do it on his own, but right away created learning groups at a time when that was probably rarer than it is now. And now that's become, uh, thanks to Uri Walensky's work, it's become more, uh, more known as a, a good learning technique. Katie. You know, like Linda, I had one fabulous teacher in elementary school and one or two in high school. And like John, actually, I'm a whitewater kayaker and a downhill skier, and I had a fabulous whitewater kayak instructor and a fabulous, right over the hill at Beaver Creek, ski instructor. And I was thinking about them last night and what they had in common. And actually, my thoughts went back to a session that some of you may have been in yesterday. It was Anna Devere Smith interviewing Jeff Fletcher, uh, who was the screenwriter for Precious. And he talked about how the book, Push, which, which Precious was based on, begins. And it begins with a quote from the Talmud, uh, which says something like, every blade of grass has an angel who bends over it and whispers, grow, grow. And he talked about the teacher in Precious and said, you know, great teachers are the teachers who remain with us for the rest of our lives. And, and they're the teachers that don't just whisper, grow, grow, but who whisper also, you can, you can. And when I talk to kids today, and we spend a lot of time talking with kids, they're very clear about this, especially kids who present in other circumstances as tough and disengaged. They, they talk about the teachers, the great teachers, in very interesting ways. At first, they say simply, they respect me. And you don't quite understand what that means, but when you push underneath that to see what is, what is respect, how does that actually present in a classroom, what, what they say is something, it's a combination of what really amounts to, I think, three things. It's, it's about high standards and often really high standards. It's about a very clear communication that I believe you can meet these standards, but it's also about something else, and that is an unswerving commitment to be there for you, to help you as you struggle. And when kids talk about those teachers, it's like the teachers, the, 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 they say, the, these teachers get into my head, right? It's like they print on the inside of my forehead, I'm a student, I'm a student, I work hard. And, and in the end, what great teachers are, you can tell they're the, they're the adults for whom kids work the hardest, period. That's how it looks. Very good. Thank you.
Peter? Well, it was elementary and high school, and I have to speak up for middle school. Middle school the teacher that comes to mind was a social studies teacher. I grew up in an all-white community, Dearborn, Michigan, where race relations were non-existent because we didn't have anything but white people. Um, and where I would say he was great because he, he was not the most popular teacher. In fact, he may have been the least popular mm -hmm. teacher in the school at the time. But he challenged us to change our thinking. And I think that's often what a great teacher will do, is to you know, just get you to look at things in ways that you never have looked at them before and to really have a passion in what you're teaching. I think that always goes with great teaching is they really have to love what they're doing. Um, I think that, you know, you can run into problems if there is an agenda, and he obviously had an agenda. Fortunately, I think that he was on the politically correct side in the end, um, but he was a teacher that you know, expected, had the high expectations that everyone's talked about, but really tried to get us to look at things in the world and social events in new ways. Would you say an agenda? Can you uh, be more specific? Um, I think that, you know, teaching is a giving profession, and teaching is a wonderful profession. You get many rewards, but I think that a lot of teachers are teachers because they want to make an impact on the world, and one of the ways to make an impact on the world is to influence you know, future leaders in the world. And so I think that, you know, there are obviously in religious schools, there are agendas there quite often. And, I mean, if you're an aspirin, Aspen, <laughs> you're in a um, <laughs> liberal community, and probably you're going to find that there's a lot more environmental push in the schools. Um, so I think that a lot of teachers have agendas, and I think that the balance for a great teacher is not to let an agenda get in the way of their teaching but not to also squash it, because that is their passion. This is something which isn't in our script, but it's such an, it's, it's the, if I could exaggerate, it's the, mis it's the Miss Jean Brody question. Uh, I mean, a very uh, charismatic teacher who had a very, very strong point of view. Um, other people in the panel want to talk about passion, neutrality, presenting the other side. Any, any thoughts about that in a, in a great teacher? Can I jump back sure. in just for a moment? I think that um, in order to balance that, what I've found that I have to do is sometimes take, play the devil's advocate of the side I don't believe in, just so that students are seeing the other side. Um, and as I said, I thought that he was a great teacher because he was able to change my thinking. He did not preach. He just sort of said, have you considered this? And, you know, and he, le he let the students who were very racist and prejudice, say what they believed. And then he would just sort of turn it around and say, well, have you considered this? So I want to take the flip of that for a second because my experience around that occurred when I was a teacher, not necessarily as a student. And the first faculty I joined, and very much and very powerfully remember faculty member who was relentless about calling out um, what would be I would clearly call is, is both racist disbelief um, uh, behaviors of fellow faculty members. Um, and that whole conversation usually remains quite silent um, and is usually um, difficult to raise. But the passion for the fact that, you know, how dare we hold that belief system for students who are in front of us was equally compelling. In my experience, the great teachers, though, go one more step with this idea, 
and, and I'll illustrate it with a, this fabulous assignment that I saw not so long ago. The teacher, this is a high school um, assignment where the kids were asked to argue using evidence their point of view on a particular um, uh, on a particular social question. And then their assignment the following week was to argue the op- mm. opposite point of view and to use evidence there too. So it's not just about confronting beliefs, but it's actually demanding that students actually get over the, whoa, uh, over <laughs> the hump into the other side's head and actually argue that perspective as well. In, in work that my colleagues and I have done, we've asked people um, whom they've admired and whom they've learned from, and they often suggest mentors. But what, what we were surprised to find that often people told us more what they'd learned from what we called their anti-mentors or their tormentors, <laughs> people who they really didn't like and said, I don't want to be like that. But as you were saying, Katie, that, that charged example often remains with you. Do any of you have uh, teaching memories where you say, my God, that's the one thing I don't want to have in a, my child's teacher or the one thing I don't want to do as a teacher? Or even you know, people who were a pain, but it was, it was good pain. <laughs> I work in lots and lots of schools in my in my current work and so there are so many images of both great teachers and teachers who would be, you know, the uh, anti-role model for both, you know, uh, what I'd like to see for the kids I work with but also for the teachers that I'm trying to prepare. Um, and I guess you can learn from those. You can sort of say, well, you know, and certainly you want... Uh, prospective teachers to have lenses to look and reflect and evaluate and learn from negative examples as well as positive examples. My criterion around that, which kind of goes back to the issue we were talking about a minute ago, is whether what teachers are doing is sensitive to, responsive to, aware of each child in the classroom. Because as we're talking about great teachers, um, there are some teachers who are great for some kids and are absolutely um, disastrous for others. There are some schools, many schools, that are good for some kids who are uh, streamed into the upper tracks and get the advantages of the school and are known by everybody and are awful for other kids. Uh, And so my definition of great is um, good for all kids, and that means confronting some of these issues about inequality that are embedded in the ways that many people... Um, come into whatever their line of work is, and teaching is no exception, and come into schools. Um, and I think that's what you were starting us off on. And uh, in some areas, I don't know that there should be uh, a balanced perspective. I think we have to confront those issues, and we have to, and, and those, I don't think people actually learn to be great only by seeing counterexamples. Um, you know, one of the things that has been a challenge in teacher training, I know I'm getting ahead a little bit, but uh, is uh, you need to see great teachers teach and you need to work with them to learn uh, what they know. And in many cases over many years, people would be put in schools, uh, here, so-and-so needs a student teacher because they're not doing very well, and then told to try to do the opposite of what they've seen. 
<laughs> and so, uh, and m many of you may have had that experience if there are teachers in the audience. Um, so I think we have to be much more clear about the equitable uh, models of teaching in classrooms and in schools that we uh, want to cultivate as the places where prospective teachers will, will learn. You actually raise a, an interesting point, which I was thinking about with the first round, and that is a number of people mentioned um, teachers in sports or in the arts, and there it's more typically one-on-one. -on -one. And so there, if the teacher doesn't work out, you know, you can find another teacher. But you're saying when you have a class of 20, 30, 40 students, um, it's not ideal if the teacher is good for some but not other students, and that's a much more complicated calculus. Mm -hmm. Well, you have to learn yeah. to love every child you teach. This is something I still work on with myself after 30-some years of teaching. Enough, not in the same way, but enough to be able to say, I understand you, I see you, I find a way to appreciate you as a human being and to connect you to teach you. And all human beings have the tendency to play favorites, to privilege some and not others. Somebody pushes your buttons. Uh, and there is a moral and ethical and almost spiritual element of becoming a great teacher for all kids that uh, takes a different kind of cultivation be in addition to the sort of technical skills that teachers need. Other thoughts about uh, negative examples? I would just say that you somewhat learn from their mistakes, but many times you have to repeat them yourself before you really <laughs> learn. <laughs> Somebody said, as a wise person who learns from their own mistakes, it's a wiser person who learns from the mistakes of others. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I do remember a, t a teacher of mine whom I, uh, whom I did like, but most people didn't. Uh, and my wife, Ellen, who's here, will remember who this was. And he said to me once, this, is, this was you know, in, in, in the university, when I read a paper, as soon as I get to something that isn't clear, I don't understand, I stop reading. And I've never, uh, I've never forgotten that. And uh, I don't inflict it that much on my own students, but I do try to inflict it on myself. But that could be deadly to some students because Absolutely. it's... it's it, Katie, do you want to... No, uh, it, it, I mean, it's just too painful a topic to me. I don't have to remember <laughs> bad teaching. I see it several times a week. I'm in and out of classrooms, mostly in our highest poverty, high minority schools around the country. And uh, a lot of what I see can only be described as soul killing. Um, expectations for kids that are so low um, and teaching that is so sad that you just want to run screaming to the night. So it's too painful to talk about, but I learn nothing from it other than I, that's where I get my passion to change. But Katie, but so but one of the things about that is that um, I too see a great deal of that, but I've come to see much more of systems that do that as well, mm -hmm. as opposed sure. to any individual teacher, um, or the failure of a system to respond to lift and grow um, teacher talent. And so it's painful at a very, very broad level. Well, and that's really the fundamental issue we have in this country because high-achieving nations really have whole systems mm -hmm. that are designed to train teachers <coughs> extremely well on the front end. Uh, usually in places like Finland and Singapore and Korea, uh, you'll get three or four years of preparation while you're getting paid. It's for free with pay. Um, top drawer, 
then mentoring, then ongoing collaborative work among teachers, systems of curriculum support. We have such an ad hoc uh, system, uh, non-system, whereby, you know, we dare you to become a teacher. You can go into debt, you know, to do it, to earn a salary that will be 25% less than what you could be earning in another profession. You might get good training. Some people do. You might get uh, really poor training. Uh, the odds of getting a mentor when you get in there are kind of 50-50. Um, you know, nothing is planful, purposeful, organized, systematic in many places uh, to let's, allow let's, us to build great teaching on a regular basis. So it's, it's individual teachers doing heroic uh, work, often still, and I went into teaching 35 years ago, um, still more or less on their own. That has not changed in most communities. And it's criminal. Linda, you've actually studied some of these exemplary teaching systems. Can you help those of us who aren't familiar with them with one or two concrete examples of what happens in this course of being an apprentice teacher, which uh, would surprise most Americans, including many of us, because we sort of think, well, you know, put the teacher in the room, and uh, if they're any good, they'll figure it out. What, what, are, what are a couple of things that, that struck you? Well, let me talk about Finland for a minute because Finland was a low-achieving uh, country 30 years ago, very inequitable, uh, and it's now the top-rated nation and OECD nation is in the world, um, and uh, they will attribute their investments in teaching to that set of gains. Uh, in Finland, uh, they overhauled all the teacher education programs, just closed them down, reopened them, an entirely new curriculum. What do teachers learn? They learn first how to work with struggling students. A lot of the emphasis is on what we would call special education students because the idea is if you can teach kids who struggle to learn, you'll be able to teach anyone. And it's a bet that has paid off because you're learning to individualize, to diagnose, to figure out how people learn, figure out what they need. It's almost all project-based, performance-oriented teaching and learning. So teachers are learning how to construct projects and uh, activities for kids in which they are uh, engaged in not being talked at, uh, not bubbling in or filling in the blanks, but engaged in really productive work uh, from the early grades on, and they learn how to develop those assessments and curriculum uh, in the course of their preparation. They learn action research. They become researchers. They write a research thesis. They learn how to research practice and whether it's working and how to improve it. So when they come into teaching, they are very highly trained professionals with a, uh, an orientation towards diagnostics, towards research, towards understanding what works, what doesn't work, towards continually working together to improve it. Uh, and then, of course, there's all kinds of time for people uh, to collaborate, to go into each other's classrooms, to go into each other's schools, to evaluate and to continue to improve practice. Uh, they, like many Asian countries, engage in things like lesson study, where you plan a lesson together. John and I would get together with our colleagues. We'd plan our lesson in fractions. John might go in and teach it. The rest of us would come in with videotapes and audio recorders and notebooks and see what's going on and give him feedback, see what the kids are learning, uh, fine-tune fine it together, and then Katie might teach it the next time. Uh, so it's a collaborative, student-centered uh, form of teaching aimed at high standards uh, and authentic performance. All of these are places with um, a national 
curriculum that's also focused on higher order thinking and, and so, problem solving uh, skills. You've been, you've been to these high performing countries. Does everybody who gets into the teacher education program end up being certified or are there ways of saying, look, you might be a great accountant or a great engineer, but uh, <laughs> uh, stay away from our kids? Do you know how, the, what, what kind of a screening process is there? Well, it's very highly selective on the front end. Right. And but on, using which criteria? Uh, using criteria that range from um, you know, academic performance. In Asian countries, usually they have undergraduate teacher education. In Scandinavia, it's graduate-level teacher education, so you're either coming out of high school or college, uh, but you know it's high academic achievement and content preparation. But it's also, have you worked with kids before? Do you, are you a good communicator? There's a very extensive interview process, uh, observation process. They put people in groups and see how do they interact. They give them prospective teaching situations. So there's a lot of selection on the front end, and some people don't make it through, but most people do make it through uh, because they have been highly selected and they're highly trained. They don't leave it to individuals to say, am I going to get um, a, a high-quality training or do I not have enough money or not feel like spending it and I'm just going to get a couple of weeks of you know, something in the summer? That just doesn't happen in other countries. Yeah, I, I Everybody gets. So they put the uh, effort into it on the front end. Yeah, I should point out, for, uh, having recently been to both Finland and Singapore, you know, these are highly sought-after, well-compensated positions and people would consider teaching vis-a-vis -vis other professions in a way that's much less common in this country. Um, Peter, uh, I'm going to ask you the question very bluntly. Are good teachers born or made? And uh, if not born, how early can one tell who has got the potential and who should be directed I towards some other field? I would say that it's both nature and nurture there, obviously. Um, that you are born with a lot of your personality traits. And so there are some people that will probably never be good teachers um, just because that's not their personality. You know, They're not going to be warm with kids. They're not going to be able to relate and do the things that you need to do to inspire kids. At the same time, I think that there are things that you can do um, to you know, encourage or open up um, what that genetic side so that you make that flourish. So I think it's a combination of being born and being trained. And how early can it start? I mean, I really think that start, some of my training as being a teacher was being a student and watching these teachers, both the good and the bad, and sort of going, not that way. I mean, so, you know, it, I think that kids start picking up things right away as soon as they're born. And I think that the problem I see is that we have this stereotype of a teacher, and it hasn't changed for decades and decades. And that everybody's- The stereotyping what? The stereotype, um, well, I guess part of it is that teachers tend to be very socialist. I mean, we're taught to tell kids to be very fair, you know, treat everybody equally, do that sort of thing. And one of the problems comes is that kids aren't all the same. You know, you have very bright kids, you have kids that struggle, you have kids with anger management issues, and if you try to treat them all the same, it's not going to work in your classroom. But I think that you know the stereotype is, well, we're going to do everything to treat every child the same, and that's not what's needed in the classroom at all. Other thoughts about this? Uh, uh, Peter said he thinks there's a genetic component. 
which could, could uh, right away start a fight in certain quarters. Um, how do other people feel? I think there are dispositions um, that people have towards the profession, <coughs> but I'm very clear that not everyone can teach. And I'm very clear that not everyone can teach well. And I'm also very clear that uh, teachers, uh, individuals with a certain set of dispositions can be helped to be much better at this science of, of teaching. Um, and I also think it's, it is easier um, than we think to glean individuals who have a set of dispositions very early on. Now, I think you can see this in high school. Um, I think you can see this in college. Well, what kinds of things would you look for? I assume it wouldn't be membership in the Socialist Party, right? I, I, don't th I actually don't think that's the issue at all. I think the issue is, um, you know, uh, high-functioning camp counselors, high-functioning um, team captains, high-functioning um, peer tutors, um, folks who uh, work um, with youth to develop leadership um, in, in, in other youth. Um, I think th those things are, I mean, some of the best evaluations are some of the kind of very, very high-functioning day camps um, in the United States for counselors about taking a look at um, you know, really good performance reviews about how you interact with students. Well, and it's, it's partly being attentive and observant, watching the kids, seeing them, understanding what's yep. going on, being relational and so on, uh, being a good uh, explainer, um, you know, all of those kinds of things. But you can cultivate these traits and you absolutely can make better teachers. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt about that. And uh, there is a lot to learn about teaching, both from you know, research on teaching and from great practitioners who are everywhere. And we need to honor them and locate them and use them much more in, in the process. But I, I want to just tell a story about my own daughter, who, uh, when she was in kindergarten, was, being, was in a classroom taught by a teacher who'd come uh, through an intern program and uh, had not had much training, was using assertive discipline in the classroom. And there was an outpouring of problems from the parents because kids' names were going on the board with check marks next to them. Some of you know this practice. In this particular classroom, the names on the board were mostly boys, almost all black boys, who were moving and talking, which were forbidden in this kindergarten classroom. Um, and so my daughter developed stomach aches and nightmares and you know all the rest of it. We finally had to take her out of school. It just We couldn't get the county to change it. Uh, and um, she went to another school where there was a, also a beginning teacher. In this classroom, kids were making their own books. They were doing little science projects. Uh, they were, you know, it was uh, just a seamless, uh, exciting uh, web of activities. Uh, and within two weeks, this teacher said, your daughter's probably dyslexic, um, and here's what we're going to do. She figured out that she had a reading disability, which we had, were suspecting. She never put her in a group where she knew that she had any problems. She taught her to read. She became a lifelong read reader and is now a reading specialist herself. Um, and I finally said to her, how did you learn to do this? She'd gone to Teachers College, Columbia University. She told me about the course in reading disabilities she's had that had taught her how to spot that and deal with it right away. All of the things she knew how to do were things she had learned how to do. Beginning teacher, spectacular outcomes with kids uh, who were floundering in another classroom. That needs to be available to every teacher. Uh, and I later went to teacher's college myself. I learned a lot about teaching from my colleagues because they had figured out how systematically to make that available to people who want to be good teachers. I want to go back to what 
John said, because I think we all recognize that uh, image of the somebody who is a, you know, uh, a leader in, in, in schools and athletics and uh, gets other kids to do things. Um, and I would have said those are people who end up in business um, or maybe end up in leadership positions in different spheres. So the question I'm interested for all of you, uh, we know that a lot of people who are in education are there because their families are, and I think that applies to some of the people here on the dais. But to what extent do we in our society take kids who are in high school or college and say, you know, you've really got the gifts to be a great teacher and you should consider that career as opposed to, I mean, often it's you know, people who are having <coughs> difficulty in school who become teachers. I mean, it's no, not, not anything anybody feels good about, but it's not the, you know, I mean, it's, it's not the top quartile. That's why, you know, many of us think well of programs like Teach for America because they do bring in the, you know, the, you know, the stronger students. But what do, we, what do we do for sifting through talent and could we do more? We do exactly the opposite. Right. Right. So, so right. bright college students, um, at least until Teach for America started, were actively discouraged right. by their faculty members from even considering. I mean, that was the place where the lesser lights went over to the ed school. Um, it, it, so we do exactly the opposite. But, but I want to I wanna also amplify one of the points you made about leadership, right? Great teaching has has elements of leadership in it. In fact, if anybody want to read more, one of the best books ever written, as far as I'm concerned, about great teaching is written by a guy who's sitting right back here, Stephen Farr, VP at Teach for America, who wrote a book called Teaching as Leadership, right? That is a fascinating, well-researched look at some of the great teachers that came through the route called Teach for America. Um, and I would commend it to all of you. It is a fascinating look at the characteristics and traits and practices of great teachers. This country does not see teaching as an iconic profession. This country does not itself as an entity invest in the, the absolute notion that our best and brightest must first teach. It's the only way that we're going to actually build a kind of a uh, economic base around this. And I actually think that your studies, as I've read, have other countries have really gotten that very differently. Um, that there's a social obligation for the adults to help other adults be their best in this, and that the country has an obligation around its um, both economic and social future in developing a teaching core that is the best. We, I mean, I think um, you said it, we do exactly the opposite. And not only do we do, we discourage it. We, we work to discourage it. Well, you know, we... Uh Interestingly, in places that do cultivate, do call on people to step up, there is a response. So uh, when I came out of Yale College, you know, I had the same experience that my daughter had coming out of Yale College of why would you want to become a teacher. But at Stanford, when we uh, overhauled the teacher education program there, people said, why would people at Stanford want to become teachers? We were overwhelmed with interest from Stanford undergraduates who wanted to become teachers and who now... Uh, go into the profession and stay in the profession. Jeff Canada came through the Harvard College Teacher Education Program before he started the Harlem Children's Zone. We, uh, when, when medicine was not yet a profession in 1910, uh, Harvard thought it was too good to have a medical school because that was not a respectable profession. Uh, we need to have the expectation that places like 
Harvard and Stanford and Yale, as well as places like the University of Colorado and Colorado State and, and many others, will have great teacher education programs the way they have great medical education programs. I think it's very doable. And it's absolutely doable. We just have to get focused on it. But you did say one thing, which we don't have time to unpack you, but it's very important. Attract and stay. Yeah. And there needs to be but what do you mean career, by stay? Career yeah. paths. What is stay? Can, can I speak on the stay? Yes, mm -hmm. yes um, please. <laughs> you have standing. I, I have <laughs> me, seen many great teachers come into the schools and leave. And to me, that's very discouraging. And I think that, you know, in Aspen, we're very lucky. Uh, we have good schools, easy students to teach. But there is a often dehumanizing part of the thing and sometimes it's just that you know we're using this math program I want you to be on this page on this day and it's like that's not why I went into education and you can get it just beat out of you I mean you know you have sometimes parents who are hard and you have other things and when it gets so that there are no rewards you see some of these teachers who really could be great teachers but are beat down by the system leave um, so I think that it's great that, you know, they're getting prepared in the teacher education program, but then it can be very discouraging to sort of say, well, here are the standards, you know, we're going to just work to that and, you know, all creativity, all, all the things that we said make a great teacher can be cut off. There's an inverse relationship between the degree to which we trust teachers to be highly able and competent and the degree to which we try to micromanage them. Right. Will you say on, a, on the air what you told me about what's happening in Washington, D.C.? Which, which about, thing? <laughs> about, about, about teachers removing themselves from the system? Because I think that needs to be articulated. Well, I think teachers will leave, as Peter said. Teachers will leave systems where they feel that they cannot do their work well, where they can't be efficacious, where they're not respected, and where their work is not respected. And that's true all over the country. And uh, to the extent that the unevenness of our investments in teaching lead us then to try to uh, micromanage and standardize teaching in ways that are not good for kids uh, because kids are not standardized uh, or for teachers, to that extent we drive good people out of the profession. Can you do Can I, I, well, I certainly, I, I don't know where you were going with Washington, D.C., but I would certainly not suggest that teachers in Washington, D.C. are horribly unhappy. They just they just ratified a, a very different new contract, four to one. So that to me doesn't say they're unhappy, they're running away um, in droves, four to one. So I wanted to make a comment about the kind of delicate balance between the scenario that you described and, and I've seen that many times where people are just is oppressed in terms of the way to teach and the very real dilemma that um, youth across schools and across systems of schools get the right to have the exact same high um, coursework. So algebra can't be just partially taught because I actually feel it's really important to focus on max-min problems, so I'm just going to just kind of do that and forget the rest of it. So the notion of a very high standardized um, rigorous curriculum is, I think, something that shouldn't be negotiated. The way you teach that I think is about the skill set of the individual. And that this is much greater freedom about how to teach it, the what held tight, the how m much looser. And, and I think that's an issue of, of both the resource inequity we see, which is the resource of opportunity to learn for lots of youth in, in our cities. 
So I just wanted to um, talk about that balance. I think that's really important. There's a grain size question that we have to confront around common core standards and curriculum. And I think you're beginning to put that on the table. Um, Singapore has a national curriculum. It's a small place. It's the size of Kentucky. Finland has one. Uh, the, but the curriculum in mathematics is, uh, can be contained in 20 pages for right. grades K through 12. Right. It's clear what you're expected to teach at what grade levels, but then teachers develop the lessons right. that are responsive in their school to their kids <coughs> around uh, common expectations. It's not a script. It's not a scripted curriculum. There's something between, right. uh, you know, say this and be on this page on this day, and here's what we expect your kids to learn this year, uh, with room for teachers to figure out how to do that in ways that are responsive to their kids uh, and, and their uh, community that we have to kind of figure out. Time check. Um, I did try to fan a little flames here and probably <laughs> succeeded for some of you. Um, I don't think we're going to have a chance to talk about um, whether teaching is an art or a craft or a science. Um, probably nobody would say it's completely a science, but I think there'd be differences here in the extent to which it can be algor algorithmized. Um, I think everybody has agreed more or less that teachers can, teachers can get better and should. Um, it's not some, nobody's born fully, uh, you know, fully, dre fully dressed as a, as a teacher. The one question which I definitely want to ask, and then if we have time, get some uh, comments from the audience, is the question now is not are we going to evaluate teachers, but how are we going to evaluate teachers? And uh, uh, why don't we... Mix up the order. We'll go Katie, Peter, Linda, and the man who's about to have 800,000 teachers <laughs> to answer. To answer. <laughs> Students. Yeah. Right. Uh, Katie first? No, you want me first? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> my sense is that the, because the primary work of teachers is around growing children's learning, the primary measure of their effectiveness has to be around how much students grow. That for me is a no-brainer. Um, but I think we also need, so beyond looking at how much their children grow using hopefully a robust set of assessments, um, you want to have observation, preferably wherever possible by peers who actually know the subject and the grade level. Um, but I also think there are things to look at like, what do students say? Students are actually way more insightful about how well they're engaged, how good teachers are at helping them if they get stuck. Um, and, and I think it's a mistake not to ask, um, ask uh, kids for their insights in this process as well. How well teachers help each other. Um, Linda talked a lot about the, the, the need to create a community among teachers to help um, craft better lessons and projects and so on. So I would look at that combination. Thank you. I have very strong feelings on the subject, I guess. Um, one of the things is we tend to test math, English, and reading. And what you have then done is put tremendous pressure on those teachers and release the pressure on other teachers. Um, so that alone creates some inequity in the school system. So that it's like you're starting to get these hierarchies of teachers and some are more important than others. And um, In evaluation, I think that the other thing is I sometimes teach my kids and then I say, all right, when it's time to take the test, forget what I just taught you. Okay. 
because I might have taught them on using fragments, sentence fragments intentionally. I said, don't do that on the test. You'll get marked down. You know, or remember, all right, we're not doing remainders anymore, but on the test, you're going to have to go back and do remainders. So sometimes I feel like I'm teaching down to the test, and I have to sort of say, remind them those things. So that's my problem with using standardized tests. And I think that the, the idea behind standardized tests are wonderful. The idea behind no child left behind is wonderful. It's the unintended consequences that we're having from that that are causing many problems in the education. How should we evaluate teachers? I don't have an answer to that too well. I think that it, a large part should be on student and parent satisfaction, just because those are the clients and they, in many ways, know what's going on in the classroom way more than somebody who's grading a test does. Thank you. Linda? Well, Peter already talked about the issues we have with our current tests, and I guess what I'd like to do is reaff reaffirm one thing that Katie said, which is that it's important to be looking at student learning as part of the evidence base around teaching, to look at teacher practice as well as student learning. There are all kinds of issues around that. Um, if I'm a history teacher and I'm teaching a research paper and the kids are writing and revising and revising and their English scores go up, does the English teacher get credit for that even though she was absent half of the year and got too friendly with Jack Daniels? I mean, you know, <laughs> those kind of things are, you have to be able to look at practice, you have to be able to look at learning. You have to look at learning in lots of ways. The current tests that we have, particularly state tests, are the least uh, reflective of the actual curriculum that kids need to learn. So we need measures that look at fall to spring. We need more performance-based measures. We need measures that are uh, much more robust with respect to kids' ability to write and defend their ideas. And I was an old English teacher. Think critically. Uh, do science inquiries. Some states have done that kind of work. Other countries do that routinely. We have a long way to go to get the kinds of assessments that will allow you to teach to tests that you can believe in um, rather than teaching to tests that are dumbing down the curriculum. But I think we have to begin to make efforts and work with teachers to figure out what kind of evidence about student learning can be brought to the table, multiple sources of evidence about student learning, and then evidence about practice by expert evaluators, as Katie said, um, evidence from clients. I'd also like to see teachers evaluated on how they are contributing to the growth of their, of their um, fellow teachers and right. to the welfare of the school. Schooling is a collaborative activity. Teams of people do important work. All of them touch the kids. What the last thing is that we need is a system where teachers are competing against each other and not collaborating and sharing and making the whole greater than the sum of its parts. So that needs to be part of evaluation as well. Yeah, interesting in terms of research, you know that at, at high school, the unit is the department. Mm -hmm. um, so last, I, last uh, word yeah, from I, the panel. I, 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 um, I have a suggestion because really have the audience's attention. There are some people, though, who must get to a 115 session. I'm going to suggest that we take a maybe a five-minute break for those who need to leave. I assume all of you can stay for a few more minutes to continue and answer questions. Mm -hmm. Would that work? John, do you want to quickly say a few sentences, and then we'll have the break? Yep, I think about this issue a lot, a great deal. So I'm not going to repeat the notion that it needs to be about balance of measures of effectiveness and that the majority of those measures really should be growth over time for youth. But I think the way I think about this is not so much about this as that this is a three-part process. It's really about the process and tools of measuring. 
It's about the stake we put in the decision of what that tells us, and it's about the decisions we make. So what are we going to do with the knowledge from an evaluation system, and what effect is that going to have on the employee? And I think this is an imperfect science at the moment, but it doesn't mean that this is something that shouldn't be tackled, and it should be tackled both collaboratively and cooperatively around the place. To do nothing around this and just say, you know, you can't, you can't judge my effectiveness because it's not possible to do that. I think that's just ridiculous. Of course we can do that. Um, to say that you are going to be hired and fired based on a year's worth of test scores is equally as ridiculous as the first statement. This notion of getting this right in balance but not ignoring what we already know around this is going to be really, really important. The issue of stake is going to be one that's going to have to be carefully negotiated. But I actually think it's the issue of decisions that are far more important. So if we know a history of effectiveness and we know a history of ineffectiveness, we have an obligation to start making decisions about who gets to be in front of those teachers and where those teachers teach and where those teachers teach as a collective body. And that is going to fly in the face of some of the most difficult and entrenched belief systems which came into the education space because of a whole series of abuses early on, but which is now a whole bunch of federal laws which take care of that. Failure to actually have those hard conversations is probably the same injustice as, as doing um, uh, the extremes with the same pieces of data. Two things. One, we will take a five-minute break, and I'm going to ask any of you who want to stay and have questions to spend at least one minute of that getting your question down to 30 seconds. <laughs> Second of all, because some people have to leave, I hope you'll join me in thanking the panel for a very good hour. Thanks. It on. There you okay, go. There we go. Great. okay, well, the floor is open, and the more succinct your questions, the more people we can hear from. Over there. I'm Dave Holly. I'm a principal of Kirkwood High School in Missouri. And after 
a 20-year career of believing the teacher that as a principal, the teacher, the teacher, the teacher, we are now moving to more online learning, and I need help as a leader um, as, I, as, as we move to online learning when that flies in the face of what has been my entire belief system. It's who's in the classroom teaching my kids. So I'd like to hear some responses to uh, effective online learning or what your opinion of online learning is. Thank you. I'll start because I have revised my opinion of online learning. I have a daughter with some medical issues who has had to do a lot of online courses. And uh, some of them can be spectacularly well organized, structured, uh, discussions well handled. And those are managed by teachers. So there are online teachers who are learning to be very good at that. I've also, I uh, have co-founded a school in a very uh, high need, low income English language learning community where we've tried to use online courses, and it's very clear in that context that teachers have to be there with the online courses for the kids to get the benefit of them. So there are some independent students in K-12 who can probably learn online without a teacher at their elbow, but there are lots of others uh, who can benefit from well-designed, well-structured online courses who need a teacher right there helping them get questions answered, helping them get through, you know, um, barriers, helping them personalize it, providing the human relations. So we also need teachers who learn to be the docents, if you will, for online learning in classrooms. Just real quickly, I actually think this whole notion of distance learning and online learning at very high quality is essential to a social justice piece of allowing youth access to courses which they fundamentally can't have or accumulate in some schools because of either budget cuts or quality of community support. We can save time if you catch the eye of people with microphones. Uh, does anyone have a mic? Okay, thank you. And just catch the eye of the mic holder. I'm Georgina Levy. I'm t Peter's uh, colleague. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what role do you think that a state-controlled versus a local-controlled curriculum plays in, in effective teaching? We're locally controlled in Colorado, but I know other places in the country, California, Texas, New York, um, does it play a role in effective teaching in the way that teachers teach? Have you noticed I think we anything? Have to, I think we have to worry about the quality of the curriculum and the extent to which it allow, it's at the right grain size and allows teachers to have enough um, guidance uh, without a straitjacket, whether it's local or state. There are local curricula that are poor, poorly designed, badly managed, uh, either less well Less, not systematic enough or too scripted, and the same thing can be true at the state level. So it's not a governance question. There are questions about kids being mobile mm -hmm. and the desirability of having some you know, commonality across districts, but at the end of the day, we've got to start talking more about the quality and the nature of the curriculum guidance and, less, uh, you know, and, and worry less about the governance and more about what it actually supports teachers to be able to do. Yeah, you won't hear the word national curriculum, but that is where we are moving. And the, um, microphone? Hi, my name is Alicia Adams. I'm a Gates scholar, a Gates Millennium Scholar, went to Teachers College. I'm a young researcher, actually, a doctoral student at the University of New Mexico. And one of my questions to the panel... Thank you. One of my, my, one of my questions to the panel is, what is the focus on um, sort of thinking about changing the education sector from a, a, a variety of ways, right? So we talk about teaching 
like teaching in the classroom and focusing on te training teachers, but what about the research aspect and the policy aspect? Because we all know that if you look at the policy in ESEA and the discussions around No Child Left Behind, that the folks who are sitting at the tables making those decisions sometimes, most of the times, don't necessarily have that classroom experience. So I'd like to hear just from the panel the perspective on sort of coming at education from a variety of ways. Um, thank you. This side of the room, comments? Well, I can, I can certainly address the policy question. Um, as you probably know, the Elementary and Secondary Act, otherwise currently known as No Child Left Behind, it has different names every six or eight years, is, is beginning this periodic process of um, reauthorization right now, likely not to get done until next year. But um, as always, what happens in that process is there's kind of a looking backwards, and there are lots of participants in the process, um, looking backwards at what's not gone so well and what has gone well over the last six or eight years looking forward to try to figure out what about the law needs to be changed in order to improve uh, its effectiveness at its primary goal, which is both raising achievement and closing gaps between groups. Now, if you ask the question, how many currently practicing classroom teachers um, are active in those conversations, I, I think, generally speaking, not many. Um, sometimes, certainly members of Congress, when they go home on the weekends, um, spend a good bit of time talking with teachers. Um, but in the process as a whole, of course, the organizations representing teachers, that is not just the um, teachers' unions, but the subject matter associations in particular, are, are very active participants in the process. Peter, do you feel that if you had strong views on the Elementary uh, Secondary Act, that you would be able to uh, get them heard, or does it seem a bridge too far? It seems a bridge too far. Yeah. Microphone. I'm Vicki Brooks from Aspen and Stanford. If, if any of you were Arnie Duncan, <laughs> what would you do differently or in addition to what he is doing for education? Well, we have to ask Linda that question, <laughs> <laughs> since she came close. Um, I think that uh, the first year has been really absorbed with the stimulus bill, the you know Recovery Act, uh, race to the top. It's a um, an initial set of levers to both patch the deep uh, cuts that would have occurred in the system and to get people to think about things like um, teacher evaluation, teacher distribution, data systems, uh, etc. Where we need to go next, I think, is to build the systems. We're very good in the United States at innovating. We're the best innovators in the world. We've got lots of, I think there are lots of teachers here, people who have created great schools, great programs, uh, great opportunities. They come and they go. We have what I call popcorn innovation, popcorn reform. We're not very good at building a system. Uh, to build a system, we've got to address several things. We've got to address the inequality and in resources to schools. We have third world country schools in the United States serving African-American Latino kids in low-income communities, uh, spending half as much as wealthy suburbs. Um, that has to be fixed, but the money has to be spent on the right things. We have to build a system of preparing and supporting teachers and school leaders so that they have all the tools, all the knowledge, all the supports they need to be expert and supported in the classroom. We don't do that. We have to do it. It's the only thing that everything else can hang on. 
We need to focus our attention on higher order thinking and performance skills rather than the kind of rote teach to the test that we've had. Uh, every high achieving country is doing that. And then we have to build schools that are good places for teaching and learning. Uh, and we have some of those, but we have many more places where that work has to be done. And we have to think systematically, uh, not just about a little reform here or a little reform there that's going to last for three years until the money runs out. Uh, and that's the challenge we have. If we don't do that in the next 20 years, we will be a third-rate power. There's no doubt about it. If you watch what other nations are doing to build high-quality, uniformly good systems of education, for all of their citizens, uh, we need to take a lesson from that kind of work. I'd like to add a comment. I would suggest two things. One is to be very mindful in the immediate future about how we're going to figure out the support to states and districts to actually spend the money that they are going to get and raise the top. So the capacity to do what's proposed alone, I think, is going to be an enormous issue. So we've catalyzed this change. We actually have to actualize the change. I think that's one issue. Second of all is I would love to see a large chunk of money put out there in another form of race to top competition where we would incent the bidding and development of kind of gold standard teacher preparation academies across the country. And there we would craft the notion of just like we did with the kind of military system um, around the um, West Points and and the Naval Academy, we could do the same thing across the country with top-notch um, and then underwrite our graduates from there, obviously to work in the most impacted cities, a portable national pension around this issue, um, and a salary differentiation. And I think that is going to be really important to think about that piece. Let me just say, before I leave, because I have to catch a shuttle, <laughs> that everything John said, we need, then need to think about how do you scale that up and make it a system. Yeah. You yeah. know? That's got to be the way we think about all of our reforms. I think we should close the formal proceedings. Linda does have to go. Um, maybe some of the other panelists may hang around a bit longer if you have questions. Um, I hope we've given you some things to, to think about, and uh, both in terms of public policy, which we've heard about, but also in terms of your own children and grandchildren, and maybe guiding some of them with promise to become great teachers themselves. Thanks, Howard. <laughs> Thanks, Jack.